Peace be with you, church. Amen. Thank you so much. We are back in Galatians this morning with Galatians chapter 6. We're jumping into Galatians chapter 6 the first time this morning. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can find that on the pew Bible under your chair or the chair in front of you, page 975. Well, as you turn there, I want to share my personal opinion with you, so take it for what it is. It's an opinion. But judging by what I see in our country in terms of industrialization of America, the the hard press for mass production, and the mass hysteria of consumerism that inevitably follows in its wake, I think one of the most overlooked, undervalued occupations in our country by everyone, not just some, is the farmer. I grew up in the Middle East, Middle East Georgia, not Iraq or Iran or anything like that. But growing up in the South, I was always around farmers. They were members of my church, my neighbors next door. Next door for us was a quarter mile down the road, not just this reach your finger out and touch your neighbor's window kind of distance. You'd see them in stores all over the place. And I was always around farming, driving by farmland, watching crops be planted and grow in their season. Harvest time comes around. Hay, corn, wheat, sunflowers, it's all pretty cool. It's all really neat. But coming to Nova, now that I think about it, I don't think about farmers. I don't always think about the fact that food, the food I'm eating, comes from a farm somewhere. Farmers are to credit for all of our food. And now we can say all in quotes because you might find some GMO replacement for something that a farmer might grow on a farm. But all the real food that we eat in terms of meat, fruit, vegetables, grains, and then the derivatives from all those things like oils, butters, you name it, the farmer is responsible for. And I think the farmer, more than any of us, understands the principle of sowing and reaping. The farmer comes back always to that principle. You reap what you sow. Sure, if he sows corn, he's going to reap corn. Barley, he'll reap barley. But for the farmer, it's not just about the seeds that he puts in the ground or how orderly he sets all his rows or the amount of water that he uses. For the farmer, it's also about how consistently he wakes up at 4 a.m. every single day, day after day. It's about how hard he works every single day despite the blazing heat or the freezing cold. It's about the feed that he purchases with his hard-earned money for his animals and for the nourishment of his crops. If the farmer doesn't sow with good seed and hard work, then he will not reap a high yield that season. He understands. And this morning, Paul talks about sowing and reaping, but points out that what we will reap in eternity depends on what we sow today. Because of this, it's important that we spend our time and energy sowing properly and effectively in order to guarantee that what we reap is what we will want forever. With that being said, let's read our passage, Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Paul writes this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. 
God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think our main point this morning is this. Spirit people will persevere until the end by providing for the temporal needs of others in preparation for eternity. Okay? Spirit people will persevere until the end by providing for the temporal needs of others in preparation for eternity. And we're going to do that in three points. Uh, providing for every need, preparing for eternity, persevering until the end. So follow with me as we go. First point, providing for every need. Looking at verses 1 through 6. We spent a lot of time over the past few weeks talking about the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, chapter 5, verse 26 from last week ties us into some practical instruction that Paul wants to give to the Galatian churches to speak into the various situations that they're facing in their churches. We've, we talked earlier in this series about something called mirror reading. I don't know if you remember, but to recall, scholars use mirror reading to try to discern the problems that these churches were facing between the lines that Paul was writing to. Mirror reading is not infallible. We make mistakes in mirror reading, but it's just a tool that we use to try and read between the lines for better clarity, for a better understanding of the text. So I say that to say that we do know some specific problems Paul was writing to, specifically that they were believing a different gospel, for example, but we don't know all of them exactly. Regardless of whether we do know them or don't know the exact issue, though, when practical instruction like this comes along, we can glean from the text because it's God's Word, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, regardless of whether or not we are facing the identical situation or problem that this church is facing that Paul is writing to. We can glean from it. With that said, let's start walking through this text together. Like I said, 526, that verse before, sets us up for 6, 1 through 10. So let's read it. Paul says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul is starting some practical exhortation here with the proper posture that we should have in the church. And we'll come back to this. He's starting off, though, with the proper posture we should have. Briefly here. Don't become conceited, he says. This will lead to provocation and envy. So think back a few verses with me in chapter 5. He's already exerted the church, exhorted the church, that faith works through love, and through love we ought to serve one another. If we love, we serve, and if we serve, we'll be walking by the Spirit. We won't be fulfilling the desire of the flesh. We want to hold those two things in mind this morning, okay? Desire the flesh, desire the Spirit. We're not through it yet. I also want to say that up front, and I want you to see this, because running as an undercurrent through our verses 1 through 10 this morning is the necessity of humility. The antidote to conceit, which is a desire of the flesh, is to serve one another in humility, which is work of the Spirit. 
And here Paul gives some practical ways to do that. Here are some practical ways that spirit-filled Christians keep in step with the spirit, how they keep loving and serving others. So look at the verse with me. The first thing I want to point out is this phrase, you who are spiritual. This is key for understanding the rest of this text. You who are spiritual. This is not talking about a special class of Christians who got it all figured out. It's not talking about spiritual elites in the church. It's not talking about people who who might think they're more spiritual than others and therefore have a place that they can speak in other people's lives. It's, It's not talking about the elders of the church or the church staff or the church leaders. Paul is addressing the whole church community. He says, you, plural, you, church, who are spiritual. And when he says, who are spiritual, you could translate that as spirit people. A wooden translation would sound like this. You, people of the spirit, or you, spirit people, should restore. So what Paul is getting at here is that the believing community is one of believers who have the Holy Spirit. We've already talked about all this. They walk by the Spirit. They bear the fruit spirit, uh, the Spirit's fruit. They keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit, like we talked about in Galatians 3, defines their whole new existence, their identity in Christ Jesus in this, in this new age between the times, the already and the not yet. It defines their identity as the people of God, God's church, and they live like that now. So if you have the Spirit of God in you, Paul says, then you do this. Not fulfilling the flesh, but keeping in step with the Spirit. And thinking about that that way, we can see how it connects back to working the flesh or working the Spirit. You who have the Spirit do the works of the Spirit. And so here's an example of someone, if you have the Spirit, this is how you do it in the church. And what does Paul say Spirit-filled people do? Overall, they provide for the many, if not all, the needs they see within the body of Christ and without. So here in verses 1 through 6, we actually see within the body, Paul brings up three needs that spirit people meet. The first need is this, restoration. Look at verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, spirit people should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Restoration. It says, if anyone... And this points out from the beginning that we are all susceptible to sin and therefore at some point any one of us could be in this situation where we are caught in a transgression and we need restoration. There's not one single individual in the body of Christ who is above temptation to sin. There's not one single individual in the body of Christ who is immune to sin, the deceitfulness or the craftiness or the hardening effects of sin in their life, in their heart. And this is something that each one of us needs to recognize first. Understanding this puts us in our proper place. We are all spirit-dependent people. People in need of Jesus' atoning work at the cross and the Spirit's sanctifying work in our lives every single day. There's not one person in this room who doesn't need that. We all need that individually together. Your leaders, especially me, even me, Even being the person who stands up and teaches from God's word every week, week after week, I'll be the first to tell you that I'm definitely not above any or all temptation. I'm tempted just like every one of you to sin in a variety of ways. There are far too many times I'm tempted and I fall short because I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. 
I need Jesus to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from my unrighteousness. I need the Spirit to live in me. I need to walk by the Spirit myself and trust Him to work in my life. And I want you to know today that any leader, me included, that you have or you ever will have is a sinner. And every sinner is susceptible to getting caught in a transgression. It says if anyone is caught in any transgression, that word caught there, it's not like, aha, I caught you. Uh, like spying on you and then you figure something out. But rather, it just means that somebody's overtaken by some sort of transgression. Some sort of sin has, has overtaken them. That doesn't take away the responsibility that you and I have for our sin. We make our choices and we choose to sin. But there is, in this case, Paul is pointing out the sense in which sin overtakes us. And we feel bound by it, burdened by it. These people, we fall short. They've, they've given in to that temptation, have now found themselves caught in transgression and that can be any transgression. Think about that. Any transgression. From murder to theft to adultery to the more respectable sins, as Jerry Bridges so greatly puts it, the things that we can't see that people make more excuses for, like lying or gossip or slander. But just because we treat them like they're more respectable and nobody can see them doesn't make them any less sinful in the eyes of God. We are all susceptible to sin. And all can be caught in any transgression. But what does, someone who need, what does someone need who's caught in a transgression? According to the text, they need restoration. They need to be restored. Every spirit person restores. Not just pastors, not just staff, not just leaders. Every believer who has the spirit of God is therefore called to restore other spirit-filled believers. It is all, all of our job. We must restore one another. And that word restore one another is not just in terms of bringing someone back into fellowship after they had a big fallout or, or forgiving one another after they sinned. Though, yes, that is included in the process. But this restoration is a holistic word. It happens in those big ways, but it also happens in a thousand little ways. It's a holistic process. It's not specifically just about spiritually bringing someone to repentance in a right relationship with God, though that can and should be primary. This word involves the whole person, restoring them spiritually, emotionally, mentally, psychologically. When someone gets caught in a, in a transgression, it can have major effects, not just on them spiritually, but on the whole person. The whole person. Sin has that kind, of, that kind of staining, tainting effect on our whole bodies. And if this has happened to you, you know. Sometimes you just don't think the same way after a certain sin, getting caught in it. Sometimes you just don't feel the same way after you get caught in some transgression. There's something broken, something off. And I'm here to tell you today that you need other brothers and sisters to help you with that. We, spirit people, are called to care for the whole person. Spiritually, absolutely, yes. Encourage them to repent if they're in sin. Turn to the Lord afresh. But don't do it forsaking their health, forsaking their well-being, forsaking their mind, forsaking their emotions. We are whole people, psychosomatic beings, mind and spirit. God's created us this way in his image, and we should think about each other this way. God cares about the whole person. And when Paul gives us here, after he says that, restoration is for the whole person. We need to be restorers. He then gives us the manner that we ought to do it. He says we do it in a spirit of gentleness, with watchfulness. 
We can come with gentleness no matter what the sin is, no matter even if the sin was against us, because we have the Spirit. But also because we know that we are susceptible to the same exact things. This puts us in a place of love and service and humility, caring for their needs above our own. We can get down into somebody's mess with them and help them take steps in their mess to get out of their mess but we do so in a spirit of gentleness loving them caring for them and we also do so in a spirit of watchfulness because that process of restoration could take a while and it takes discernment and it takes wisdom and this requires us to be watchful over ourselves because guess what you and I are weak too we're susceptible to the same temptations we're frail we're sinners we too need other brothers and sisters on the ready to restore us if we fall short, let alone being watchful of ourselves when we're trying to restore our brother or sister to the Lord. Need number two, relief. Verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens. Burdens here can refer to anything that weighs us down. In the context, I think it's probably a specific example referencing sin as the burden. But I do think it could range to other things in this life that burden us like suffering or various struggles to material things. Anything that consumes our mind that burdens us, we are called as spirit people to relieve. The spirit-filled person seeks to relieve their brothers and sisters by bearing not just their own burdens, but the burdens of others in the community. Spirit-filled believers step into the mess, no matter what the mess is, because that's what we do. We bear each other's burdens. If you are weighed down, I'm weighed down. If you are hurt, I'm hurt. If you are struggling, I'm struggling with you. And when we love one another in this way, Paul says, this fulfills the law of Christ. Now, let's just camp here for just a second. After spending the entirety of the letter arguing that we're not justified by works of the law, but through Christ, why does Paul say law of Christ? Well, I don't think that what Paul is saying is that Christians now assume some new set of laws now that they have Jesus that we're supposed to live and be saved by. This would be the absolute worst bait and switch of all time. Tell everybody that you're saved without works and then you, get, you become a Christian. They're like, psych, you got to do all of this now. That's the worst bait and switch of all time. What I think Paul is actually saying is, and he would mean when he speaks of the law of Christ elsewhere in his letter, 1 Corinthians, I, I think, for example, off the top of my head, I think he's saying two things. First, Jesus alone fulfilled the law. He said this the entire letter of Galatians. He's saying it right here again. Jesus alone fulfilled the law. Because he brings us back to Jesus, we need to have our minds go to Galatians 2, where he talks about what Jesus did. And what did Jesus do? He was crucified in our place. He died for our sins. There, Paul is clear that we're justified by faith in Christ alone. And that is because of what Christ himself accomplished on our behalf. He lived a perfect life of law obedience. Then he died, becoming a curse in our place, so that by faith in him, we could be accredited. It's unmerited. We're given it as a gift, righteousness. We did not earn righteousness. We didn't deserve righteousness, but he gave it to us for free and glory to God for that. I'm thankful for that this morning. And then he arose from the dead, not just so that we could have eternal life someday, not just so that we could be forgiven someday, but so that we could have eternal life today, be forgiven today and walk in that newness of life by his spirit today. Number two, the spirit 
fulfills the law in us. Again, he's been talking about it up to this point, and that's what I think he's pointing out here. The word fulfill brings our minds back to chapter 5, verse 14. It says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. What Christ now calls those who've trusted in him by faith and have been born again by his spirit, what he calls us to do as spirit people is to love. Love fulfills the law of Christ. More specifically, the law of Christ I think is the two greatest commandments, love of God and loving your neighbor as yourself, which Jesus himself fulfilled. Jesus himself says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. And he himself works it out in us by his spirit, bringing us to completion as we walk by the spirit, bearing one another's burdens. And in so doing those things, we fulfill the law of Christ to love. Need number three, provision. Restoration, relief, provision. Jump ahead with me to verse 6. Verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, I think the NIV actually has it best here because I think that verses 1 through 6 actually fit together. Your ESV has 6 in another section. I think it actually fits together as a single unit of practical instruction on how to keep in step with the Spirit. So what he's been talking about since verse 26 of chapter 5. The NIV puts it this way says one through five, and then it says, nevertheless, each will bear his own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Now, it's a common interpretation from faithful scholars, not just prosperity preachers, although they abuse it this way. We, we can't let prosperity preachers use all the good stuff. We, can't, we need to reclaim the words like sowing and reaping. We need to reclaim all of this like blessing, believing the God. We need to reclaim those kind of words. They can't have those kind of words. It's in my Bible, and I believe the Lord. We need to reclaim that stuff. But faithful scholars, it's a common interpretation that this text, coupled with sowing and reaping in the next few verses, it refers to sharing materially with your teachers, a.k.a. supporting your pastors financially. Okay, That's a common interpretation. This interpretation, I'm going to be brief. It largely revolves around the words teaching, the word, all good things. One of the pastor's main, job, main jobs is teaching the word. That's clear. All good things here contextually refers to provisions. That's clear. Primarily, they say it's material. So that means, therefore, you materially pay your pastor's salary. I'm not personally convinced of that interpretation, just to be clear. Although I will say this. Providing financially for your pastors is right and it is good. And there is precedent in the New Testament to do so. 1 Corinthians 9, 14 specifically, it says it. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. There are other texts that support that you should pay your pastor's salary. It doesn't live and die on Galatians 6, 6. But wherever you find yourself, it is good for you to share all good things with your pastors and not just financially, but share the joys of your life. Share your breakthroughs, right? We can reclaim that word ourselves as well. What God is doing in your life through your life, the fruit in your life, the victories you're having over sin in your life. Share those kinds of things with your pastors, and I ensure you that your pastor will pastor you better. But I'm not convinced that that's what this text is talking about. I'm convinced that putting something here about providing materially for your teachers is not the main point. It's an implication of the main point, but it's not. So teaching time over. The word instruction, it's not the same word used for teaching, as in the gift of teaching or teacher's it's a different word, so I would immediately be inclined to disassociate this with a pastor role or an office. 
I could still mean, it could still mean formal instruction, but men and women can both form, be formally teachers. They can teach. The context matters uh, where, when, and how, but that's another topic for another day. But for our text this morning, I think instruction in this context, one anothering as spirit people in this context, should rather be thought of as this, instructing sinners in the way type of language. Okay? I think of James 5.19. He says, my brothers... If any one of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So with that in mind, I think the wandering is fixed with instruction. And I think this instruction can be done, should be done by anyone in the body, not just pastors to members, but member to member. Member. As Paul is addressing the whole church up to this point, the whole church after in terms of what they should do as a spirit people, I'm inclined to believe that he's using instruction with reference to verse 1. Restoring a brother or sister. This is something that we all do. And in this case, whoever goes to the brother or sister would be instructing them in the proper path, whatever that might look like. Correction, admonishment, teaching. But the point is instructing them back to the right way, thus restoring them because you spent time with them, instructing them in the way that they're called to go. So then with all that, we get to the main point of what he's trying to say. We get to share all good things with those who instruct us. What a gracious thing in the sight of God. That we would first be humble, humble enough to receive instruction from another brother or sister. And then when we do, share the return, share the benefit of receiving that instruction from them with them. We're both sharing in all good things. I think to make provision for those who instruct us, sure, it probably involves material benefit. That's what we do when we have all things in common. We we have all things in common. The New Testament church did this where we put money into a lot and we do things with that money together, providing for one another. But I also think that it includes updating, encouraging in response to someone's instruction to you, sharing in the joy of, of restoration together. You're not sinning the same way you were because that brother or sister took the time to come to you and to instruct you from the word of God that you might be restored. This is building up one another instead of, verse 26, provoking or envying one another as we walk in conceit because conceited people don't share or instruct other people's for their good and their upbuilding. Humble people do. Spirit people do. We share all good things together because we're walking this walk together. And this brings us to the second point. Preparing for eternity. We've seen the needs and we know we've been called as spirit people to provide for those needs. But don't miss the undercurrent of these verses. We find it first in verses 3 through 5. Jump back there with me. The undercurrent of this entire text is humility. Humility in light of eternity. Because the proper posture for providing for all these needs is humility, and the end goal is eternal life. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Now, it's easy for us to misunderstand what true humility is. You've probably heard it said, I've heard it said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Now I get what they're trying to say when they say that. 
I think that's a helpful way to define humility. But I think a helpful way to define humility according to Galatians 6, 3 through 5, is this. Have proper self-assessment. Properly assess yourself. This means you don't, you don't view yourself too highly and you don't view yourself too lowly. You view yourself just right. This means you won't be overtly prideful and think too highly of yourself. This also means you won't be prideful in terms of producing a false humility, like you're actually less than you really are. That is a sense of pride as well. It's having a right and proper self-assessment. And we could all work on that, couldn't we? Verse number three, we deceive ourselves if we think that we are something. We're not having a proper self-assessment. We think we're something. We're not actually something. We think we're something. Paul's not, not saying here that, that human beings don't have any worth or they're not valuable. What he's saying is that in terms of fulfilling the law of Christ, you do not have one good thing that you were not first given from your Father. Any good that you have comes as a gift. And when we start to recognize that the something that we are, right? If we have a proper self-assessment, if we are something, once we start to recognize that what we are is a gift from God, to Him be alone the glory, we begin to rightly recognize that we've not done nor can do anything to contribute to the Spirit's work in us apart from faith. Just trust in Him. There's nothing else we can add to it. There's no better we can be by our own strength. It is the Spirit of God that does it in us. He gets the glory, and we maintain the proper view of ourselves. Spirit-dependent. Think about it. If you do good, and your first thought was, wow, that was really good. I'm good. You deceive yourself. Okay? But, rather, proper self-assessment would say, rightly recognize, wow, that was really good. But then, we move from self to the Spirit. We say, wow, that was really good. That's from God. That's from the Holy Spirit working in me. Praise God. Thus, you know what happens? It produces in us humility, the humility that we need to continue walking in the Spirit and loving one another, having a proper view of ourselves. Having a right view of yourself is critical in caring for someone else's needs. But it's also critical in discerning where you stand eternally. You are called to care for one another. But in the end, you will give an account for yourself, not for them, for you. And it turns out that what you choose to sow in this life, temporally, you will reap for eternity. And understanding this will help us maintain balance in all that we choose to do. We choose to do it in humility. Now, verse 4 right here, it's a command. It's a command. Test your own work. But it presupposes that the Spirit who gives the humility to obey that command is reminding you to test that work. Test it. Is it from you or is it from God? It takes humility to properly test our own work, to properly recognize where we are at fault, where our failures are, where we are weak. It is right to recognize those things, while at the same time properly estimating our strengths, our successes, and where we are gifted. It's right to recognize those things. It is good. So you think, yeah, yeah, there's some, you need to have the humility by the Spirit to say, yeah, there's dark spots here in my heart. I'm weak in this area. I need to repent here. I need to walk by the Spirit in a greater way here. But yes, God's given me this gift. He's, he's given me this, this fruit here. I'm thankful for that. I want to fan that in the flame. I want to cultivate that. It takes right humility to do both. And then the text says, the reason to boast will be in ourselves alone 
and not our neighbor, pointing out that proper estimation, properly estimating what the Spirit of God is producing in you will, Lord willing, lead to keeping all the more in step with the Spirit and producing more because we won't be standing with our neighbor on Judgment Day. So we shouldn't look at our neighbor's works for confirmation of whether or not we are doing what is good. This goes for either the good works or the bad works that might result after we bear one another's burdens. Think about this with me. We need to remember that we're going to be standing by our own. We're going to be giving an account for our own works. We're going to give an account for ourselves. We're not going to give an account for our brother or sister. Next week, when we dig into the text, we'll see that the Judaizers, they were boasting in the flesh. They were boasting in the works of the people who were leaving the gospel and believing in them. It'd be like, it'd be like boasting before God. God, look, I helped to restore that person. And now they're doing so much good. They're walking in the light. They're loving their wife, their, their, their kids. They're doing charity work. I did that. Yeah, well, praise God. Praise God. Proper self-assessment. But it seems from this text that none of that counts for you. Praise God for what you did. But none of what they're doing counts for you. You test your own work to ensure that you remain in step with the Spirit. Not like you're banking on somebody else's stuff to have a right judgment before God. And I had this problem when I was a kid. I would bank kids on my parents' salvation as if that was going to get me to heaven. My parents are Christians. I live in a Christian house and, you know, I got a Christian family. I was banking on what they did with Jesus and their relationship with Jesus in place of my own. And there's no place for that because I'm going to bear my own load. Each one of us is going to bear our own load before Jesus. We're not going to give an account for mom and dad. We're going to give an account for Caleb, for me, for myself. We need to praise God when God does good work through us. That's amazing to be used by God. It's amazing. But we also need to have a right view of these things and test it. Test our work. Because there's not going to be any standing in heaven. We say, well, he said, or well, but that person did this and I did it and I chose it. There's no excuses in heaven. Nobody's responsible for our sin. Nobody else is responsible for the fruit in our life. You and I are responsible for ourselves, and we will give an account for it. Then verse 5 comes. It makes it crystal clear. We will be held responsible for the work that we do. We'll bear our own load. If that's the case, church, how much more should we walk by the Spirit in a state of humility, knowing that any one of us, any one of us, according to this text, is susceptible to any kind of sin at any time, and every one of us will give an account for themselves and what they choose to do in the moment. Do you sow to the flesh, or do you sow to the Spirit? We're going to give an account. Everything about that should humble us. It should humble us before God. You see, you see someone, take a leader, for example. We all know somebody like this. They're a leader. They're in a high position. They completely fall out of nowhere. It's never out of nowhere. There's always a slow fade that leads to a fall like this. But somebody falls, and you hear about this big thing that happened in their life. And then, and then this text here, though, you hear all this? This text here reminds us to stay grounded. It reminds us that, oh, that could be me too. But I need to choose to sow to the Spirit today. That could be me but I'm going to choose to sow to the Spirit. It's a warning for us to keep in step with the Spirit, not looking to the right or looking to the left or looking at what everybody else is doing, but with your eyes looking at your Christ, your Lord, walking by the Spirit that lives in you and trusting Him for the work that He's producing in your life because you're the only person that will bear what you've done. But praise be to God. 
that Jesus bore our sin. He bore our temptation so that when we repent of our sin and we trust in him, he cleanses us from all that unrighteousness. And he promises us that by his spirit, he's going to produce in us righteousness. He's going to produce in us this humility. He's going to produce in us this willingness to bear other people's burdens, to restore other people, relieve other people. Do you believe that? Do you pray for that kind of humility? Do you pray for the spirit of God to do that kind of stuff in your life? If you're not praying for it, you're depending on yourself. And if you depend on yourself for your, with your own strength and your own ability, look back to the text. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Look to Jesus, walk by the Spirit. And now we can look at verses 7 through 8, which, which Paul speaks to this specific issue, okay? Remember I said, keep in mind both works of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit. Here we're going to think about them together. Verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And this takes us back to our intro about farmers. Paul brings in the principle of sowing and reaping to make this point about flesh and spirit. What a, what's going to happen to a person who sows to the flesh and to a person who sows to the Spirit? This has been the issue since chapter 5. Now, something to note about principles, okay? Principles were never meant to be regarded as promises. They are not promises. But general truisms, it's, a, it's generally true that you reap what you sow, you get what you put in. We see this in everyday life, don't we? That it's not always true. The lazy person gets really rich. The healthy person dies young. Those are not expected outcomes according to this principle because what they've sown is far different than what they've reaped. But again, it's because it's not a promise. It's a general truism. It's a principle. But it, it is all underneath the umbrella of how God has ordained the world to function. This is what we typically see. We see that people reap what they sow. Now, taking this principle, common understanding of it in the day, Paul gives a stern warning using the principle to remind the church in these terms of sowing and reaping. What you sow today, what you sow to, you will reap in eternity. Like the farmer If he sows laziness, he'll reap little to nothing of his crop. If he sows hard work, he'll reap a full harvest. We see this in everyday life all the time. To claim it would be different is to mock God. That's what he's getting at. For us to say, you know what? I'm going to live my life in my flesh. I'm going to do what I desire when I desire it. And when I get to the end, I'm going to go to heaven because God is love or God is forgiving or God is this. All of that is mocking God. It is mocking God to say you can sow to the flesh and then reap what the Spirit reaps. It is mocking to Him. And I'm going to, I'm going to choose my flesh with the expectation that God's going to forgive me. Do not mock God. So at the front end of this verse, most important word here, Paul says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. The Judaizers themselves were saying, sow to the flesh. Now remember what form that came in, right? You sow to your desires and licentiousness and doing whatever you wanted to do. Or you sow to your legalistic desires and trying to earn your way to heaven. Keep law so you can be right with God. But Paul says it here like he said it elsewhere. Don't be deceived. And in order to not be deceived, first thing you need to know is the truth. That you're justified by faith in Christ alone. And by faith, the Spirit lives in you and works righteousness out in you. Then you need to believe the truth that God has ordained these things in such a way that we will reap from what we sow too. And then you need to live your life in light of that truth, which means that if you are a spirit person, 
if you're filled with the Spirit, you ought to make every effort to sow to the Spirit as often as possible, never giving opportunity to the world, the flesh, or the devil, because we know what is coming. We can discern the end of the flesh and the Spirit, and there's only two ends. Verse 8 tells us. The one end is death and destruction. See what it says there? Those who sow to the flesh reap corruption, that word there, death and destruction. How do we sow to the flesh? By doing the works of the flesh. Chapter 5, verse 19 to 20. The other end is eternal life. And sowing to the Spirit leads you there. How do we sow to the Spirit? What we've been talking about. Walk by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, which looks like, practically, verses 1 through 6, loving and serving one another in the faith. This is evidence that we are Spirit people. Spirit people are the ones who have eternal life today by faith in Christ, and we live like that today, not just waiting for an end to come, but we live like we have eternal life today while we also look forward to the end. The other apostles say this too. The apostle, the apostle Peter, 2 Peter, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. If you practice these qualities, you'll never fail. Or the apostle James says, Faith without works is dead. Caleb, are you saying that you can, you can just lose your salvation? No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that you need to have a proper self-assessment so that you can have proper humility by the Spirit and determine whether or not you're even saved in the first place. Spirit people, sow to the Spirit. So believer, sow to the Spirit. And if you're not sowing to the Spirit, you need to check your heart, have a proper self-assessment of yourself, and ask yourself where you are. Why am I sowing to the flesh all the time? Why am I walking in my flesh? Why am I not walking by the Spirit? Because we ought to sow to the Spirit, like we learned last week, without measure, every opportunity that we get, no matter what. So today, if you have not already, make the decision to sow to the Spirit. If you say you have the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God has given you new life, make the decision, resolve to sow to the Spirit, not to sow to the flesh. Because what you choose today has eternal consequences. If you live your life actively sowing to the flesh, that reveals that you may not have the Spirit of God living in you. And that would be true if, if you've never truly repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus. Maybe you assume some form of religion and assume that that is what made you right with Jesus, with God. You haven't accepted Christ's finished work on the cross on your behalf. Well, my encouragement to you is do that. Turn to Him and be saved. There's no day like today. If you hear the Spirit's voice, don't harden your heart. Listen to the Word and ask Him to change your life. Trust Him and walk by the Spirit. Now, if you do, if you, if you test yourself, you have a proper self-assessment and you say, you know what, I'm just struggling, I'm sowing to the flesh sometimes, I'm repenting of it, I'm trying to sow to the, the Spirit, well, here's my encouragement to you. If you find yourself caught in any transgression, it doesn't matter what it is, you could be in the thick of adultery right now. If you are caught in any transgression, humble yourself and confess it to a brother or sister. Confess it. Share it. Walk with another person, another believer, in restoration because the end of your life is at stake. Don't harden your heart. Notice Paul presupposes that he's talking to spirit people, not some other religion with some other worldview. He's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ, and to them he says, so to the spirit. Don't sow to the flesh like they need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of that as well this morning. Because if you sow to the flesh, you will be destroyed. Sin will tempt you in all kinds of ways, but it has a bitter bite, and you will die if you live in it. But if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life. 
So church, let's, lead, let's, let's heed his exhortation and resolve today to sow to the Spirit always. Sow to the Spirit because against such things there is no law. In doing these things, we fulfill the law of Christ. We will give an account for ourselves when we stand before God. And woe, we want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. We want to hear that. And so we want to do everything that we can to get there. But Paul anticipates our response. Sowing to the Spirit until the end is my desire, Caleb. What do I do? What do I do, Paul? How can I make sure I'm going to get there? Point number three, persevering to the end. Look at me at verse nine. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I think to sum up what Paul's saying in these final verses, you could say this. We will persevere if we do good to everyone without growing weary. It feels like a pretty high bar. Feels like a pretty difficult task if you just stop and you consider it for a second. But let's close our time and let's break that down and think about that for a second in two parts. First, verse 9. He says, let us not grow weary in doing good. The first reality that this brings to light in connection with verse 8 and is this. Sowing to the Spirit is doing good to all. I just want to make that clear. This doesn't mean what you subjectively think would be good for someone but what is objectively good. We're talking about objective goodness, the goodness that is the fruit of the Spirit, goodness that revolves around loving God and loving your neighbor in truth with the Spirit of truth, seeking their good, the right good, above your own, not what society or what they think is good, what is good. This also brings the reality to light that doing this work, doing good, it can be wearisome. It can be wearisome. It is not, hear me, it is not wrong to feel weary in doing good. It's not. It takes its toll on you day in and day out, seeking other people's good. Day in and day out, doing all kinds of good, restoring other people, relieving others' burdens, making all kinds of provisions for other people. But recall whose strength you do it by. We do not have one good thing that does not come from our Father. You do it by the Spirit's strength working in you, not by your own strength. So my encouragement to you saying you're feeling weary, ask the Holy Spirit for more energy. Ask him for more strength to do more good. Ask him for the strength to embrace your weariness as weakness while believing that it is when we are weak that we are strong because Christ's strength is made manifest in us there in our weakness. That's when Christ's strength is made manifest. It can be wearisome. But apparently, Paul says there's a way not to grow weary. I want to know that secret. How do we do that, Paul? Well, the antidote to weariness it's not the promise of success in your restoring efforts or in relieving somebody's uh, burdens or your effectiveness with how uh, much provision you give. None of the fruit of your labors is what keeps you from growing weary. The antidote to weariness is the promise that we will reap. This keeps our Day, eyes on the end, our eyes on the prize. Being with Jesus for all of eternity is our deepest desire. If it's not, ask Jesus for that desire to grow in you because it's our deepest desire. We can continue to persevere today, walking by the Spirit today, overcoming the ever-present temptation to give up because weariness is real and doing good is wearisome. 
See, weariness isn't the problem, guys. Weariness, you can feel weary and you can continue to persevere in the faith. The problem with this temptation is to quit when you're weary, to give up. The end of verse 9, giving up is the danger that Paul wants to warn us and to steer us clear from. Don't give up because you know where you're headed and you know how you're going to get there by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Do good today. You're walking that path to get there. We're going to get there, guys. It's going to be okay. We're going to be with Jesus. He's going to embrace us in his arms. He's going to tell us that he loves us. We're going to inherit his kingdom that he has inherited in our place. He's made us co-heirs. We're going to be with our Father in heaven who will love us forever with a love incorruptible. We'll have new bodies so we can experience a fresh Always, every second of every day in eternity, we're going to get there. But we can't give up. We can't give up. Overcome weariness by remembering the promise that you will reap in due season. And let the final words of verse 9 be the challenge, the fire, to persevere in every way possible. When the time comes, you're going to reap. But don't give up. Keep going. Keep doing good. And then verse 10, let us do good. Paul's focus was doing good within the church on verses 1 through 6 and how that looks in terms of care, watchfulness. But as we'll see here, Christians, we're not just called to do good within our local church. Our call to do good is far greater in scope than to the people that we gather with regularly who we've covenanted with as a church. Here, Paul gives the when of doing good and the who of doing good. When should we do good? Verse 10, as we have opportunity. (laughs) That means every opportunity you get to do good, you are called to do good. You're called to do it. That means in the coffee shop when you're late for work. That means at work with that coworker who's annoying. That means when you're in line at the grocery store and you're running out of time and all you want to do is get home so you can cook dinner, that means you're called to do good then. If you have the opportunity to do good, you recognize someone needs some good, you do the good to everyone. Even when you don't feel like doing the good. Because you have the Spirit of God living in you and He gives you the power to do good in those moments. Practically, then, you might ask, how do I do this? Well, first, prayer. Prayer is the place to start. Almost for for everything. Prayer is the place to start for everything. If you're not praying, please join me in my battle. I'm learning how to pray regularly. I'm learning how to pray and cast my anxieties on God. Join me if you're struggling with prayer. I would love to walk in this with you. But personally, pray for discernment so that God gives you ears to hear and eyes to see when there's somebody around you that needs some good. They need somebody to do some good for them. So when those opportunities arise, ask God that you can see them so you can do it. And then publicly, When you're called to do good, go out expecting to do good. And one encouragement with prayer is that you should pray for people. Don't be afraid to go up to somebody and be, hey, I love Jesus so much. I've seen him help so many people in so many of these situations. Can I just pray for you that Jesus would help you? Don't be afraid to ask God to be God for somebody else. He's done it for you time and time again. Ask God to do it for somebody else because you're his son and he loves listening to you. And they're not. Pray for them. Also, practically, prepare yourself to help with people's needs. Materially, it might be goodie bags for the homeless or keeping cash in your wallet that's specifically devoted to, you know, paying it back, paying the person behind you in line or paying somebody's bill or tipping the waiter or waitress in a great way so that you can show them the love of Jesus materially. Do good. 
Let people see Christ in you by your love in doing good for them. And then last, who should we do good to? Paul initially hardened, uh, broadens the scope to everyone, like we said. That means all people. <clears throat> Sorry, we talked about when. Right now we're saying who. Who should we do good to? Everyone. That means everybody. We're called to do good to people who sin in big ways and sin in little ways. It means we're called to do good to murderers, thieves, adulterers who've been retained in prisons or those people who sin the exact same way, only inwardly, not outwardly, that we meet on the street or in the shop or wherever we go. We're called to love those people, do good to those people, even including the neighbors who might hate you, revile you, steal from you, the ones who treat you inappropriately. We're called to do good to people who sin in big ways and also those who sin in little ways because our God did good to us when we've sinned in every way. They lie, they gossip, they cheat. Those who wrong us overcome their darkness with light. Do good. Meet them in their evil with the light of Jesus and love them like Jesus with good. Return good for evil when they give evil to you. And this also, you know, thinking about the LGBTQ community. Let me ask you a question. How do you respond to them? How do you do good to them? Do you do good to them? Is it with showing good, loving them, and serving them? Or do you find yourself disgusted or angry or embittered and you push them away? Which one is you? That kind of response is not godliness. Godliness doesn't sacrifice truth at the expense of love. And godliness doesn't also sacrifice goodness. We need to remember that. We love them with truth, but we love them. We're also called to do good to people of other religions. Muslims, Mormons, Hindus, atheists, you name the religion, you're called to do good to them. And because I've seen this problem in our nation, I'm going to mention it here. Just because someone is of another religion, name whatever the religion, it doesn't necessitate that we treat them poorly or treat them unjustly. That's worldly thinking. That's worldly thinking to treat them impartially. Sorry, partially. We treat people with justice and fairness. We do good. So my question is, what's your general posture toward people of other religions? Do you love them? And does that love produce service of them? Is it anger, though, or rejection? That creates, guess what? A separation that actually hinders you from sharing the gospel with them, and it actually hinders them from believing the gospel that comes out of your mouth when you do share it. Don't allow that separation to be there. Do good. Take advantage of every opportunity to do good for people of other religions. And then after he mentions everyone, Paul then puts the precedent on the church, our brothers and sisters. He says, do good to everyone, especially to the church. And that's not just your local church, but the universal church. All Christians everywhere, you as a spirit-filled Christian, do good to them. We need to be careful that the differences we have with other Christians don't turn into divisions and sever the oneness that we all share in the body of Christ. Now, I'm of the persuasion that having denominations can be helpful, right? You know what you believe. You hold fast to it together. You gather with like-minded brothers and sisters who believe the same things about the Bible, the same things about God, and then you do ministry unhindered by the tertiary issues together. But we don't want to end up in a place where we believe that our denomination is the only right way to God and therefore conceit. And then we discredit what other faithful Christians are doing in other places from other churches in other denominations that aren't ours. We can and we should have fellowship with them. 
we do good to brothers and sisters who believe the gospel, whether they're Pentecostals or Methodists or Presbyterians or even brothers or sisters who are in Catholic churches or Greek Orthodox churches. Doctrinally, sure, we don't agree with everything that they might believe, but if they repented of their sins and trusted Jesus alone for their salvation, they're not trying to work their way to heaven, they believe in Jesus, Jesus saved them, then we can have fellowship as brothers and sisters in Jesus. If they believe the gospel of faith in Christ alone, then Paul says here, we are especially to do good to them. Now, why is that? Look at the rest of the verse. One household. We are of one household. Those who are of the household of faith. He doesn't say households. He says household of faith. We're not divided as so often we want to be. In Christ, we are one family, we have one Father, we have one Savior, our Lord Jesus, who's made us all one, as we talked about when we walked through Galatians 3. So sure, when it comes to fellow members in the household of faith, have good conversations. Talk about where you disagree. Talk about the Scriptures. Go to the Scriptures, have those kind of conversations with one another, but have fellowship over the Gospel. Have fellowship over Jesus. Don't let the differences become divisions that would hinder you from especially doing good to other brothers and sisters in Christ. We do good all the time to all people, especially Christ's church. So my final encouragement to you, church, is to do good. Walk by the Spirit and do good. But don't just do good for goodness sake. Do good because you know Jesus and you know that where you're, you know you're going to be in the end. And the people you do good to, they might just need to be there too. But they're not going to be there unless they see the goodness of Christ in you. So do good to everyone, especially to those that are of the household of faith. Let's pray.